Good afternoon. So, as we are in the series of uh, Ephesians, looking at the chapters that deal with the local body of Christ, which is the church, in accordance with our theme for the year, which is Let's Build Together. You know, we come to this interesting passage that our brother just read, which talks about the imperative or the commandment given to individual Christians to lead holy lives. That's basically what these verses that we read and the following verses which we'll look at uh, in, in the coming weeks, they deal with the importance of living holy lives, living Christian lives. If you're a Christian, you have to live a Christian life. What do we mean by that is what Paul is getting into into this passage. Now last week we looked at the, uh, you know, the, the principle that the church can only be united when together as a body it progresses towards maturity, towards reaching up to the standard of the fullness of Christ. And within that, we also as individual members are to, are to grow into Christ. And, and we saw how both of those things are connected. If the individual doesn't grow, the church's growth is stunted. But if the church doesn't grow, the individual has no place to derive nutrition and, and, and you know, uh, like the elements that it needs for growth, that he or she needs for growth. So we looked at the gifts that Christ has given to the church, the foundational gifts, and then the gifts that are there today. And we saw how they all revolve around this idea of doctrine and truth. And then we looked at the fact that our own gifts are ministries. Every member of the church has a ministry which is a gift to share with someone else so that we can build each other's up in love. And so today's passage looks at the theme of holiness in the lifestyles of individual members of the church. And when you read you know, what we read last week and this week, it seems like it's disconnected, right? There, in the previous passage, we looked at the unity of the church. And now suddenly it seems like we are focusing on the holiness of individual members. But what we have to note is when you read chapter four, what's the first verse of chapter four? Ephesians chapter four, verse one says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So fundamentally, Paul is returning back to what his main theme was. Like, how do you walk as a Christian? And one of those, one of those aspects is the fact that you should be in the church and be building the unity of the church in your own individual capacity. But the other aspect is that you need to be holy. We have to note that in the Bible, there is no Christian unity possible without Christian holiness. You can have unity without requiring holiness, but that's not Christian unity. To have Christian unity, to, to have a unity which is focused on growing into Christ, you need to have a standard of holiness that is also found in Christ. So Christian unity does not exist without Christian holiness. And Christian unity is founded on the, on the gifts of uh, doctrine and teaching. We read that last week. The gifts, apostles, prophets, you know, the teachers, the pastors, the evangelists. And the doctrine of Christ is very concerned with holiness and lifestyle and our motivations and our ethics and how we are to represent Christ in this world. 
basically the Bible says that as we are found in Christ, we are to grow into Christ. As we progress in our walk, we are to become more like Christ, which means that we are to become more holy, not less. And that's true for every Christian, including the teachers. Right? You can teach doctrine and not lead a holy life. Uh, an old church father called Gregory says that he that teaches sound doctrine and lives wickedly reaches with one hand what he knocks away with the other. So teachers who teach the doctrine have the commandment to live a holy life in accordance with the doctrine that they teach. But the church that receives the doctrine, the individual members are to continue in a life of holiness and to grow in a life of holiness. And if you look at the church ordinances, which are the two church ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, you can see this mixture of unity and holiness. Okay, baptism, we read, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, unity. But baptism symbolizes what? Repentance and cleansing from sins, holiness. You look at the Lord's Supper, we share in the one bread and the one cup, unity. But if you read 1 Corinthians, you see all the warnings against idolatry and sin and, and taking the cup in an unworthy manner. That is holiness. So there, can, there cannot be Christian unity without holiness. So Paul is returning to his theme of urging his listeners as the church to walk in a manner that's worthy of their calling to be Christ followers or Christians. And when we are focused on the growth of the church, we cannot ignore to focus on the growth of the individual in holiness. And these two things go hand in hand. So in this passage, we see that he has about, like he has fundamentally three points to make. You know, it's neat, right? Have you heard of the game, uh, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon? Basically it says that you take any two, any person in the world within six relationships, you can find a relationship to this American actor called Kevin Bacon. It's true, it works. But it seems that every sermon, you can break it into three points. So what are the three points in this sermon? It, he first says who we were before we became Christians. Then he talks about who we are. And finally, he focuses on becoming who we are or who we ought to be. Knowing who we are, how do we become who we are? So who were we? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 and 19, it says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So Paul says, what is he saying? He's saying that I testify in the Lord. He's I'm, he's convinced and convicted of the divine truth of what he's about to say. You know, in verse 22, we already, in the reading that we read, verse 22 says well, that the truth is in Jesus. So when he says, I testify in the Lord, he's saying, I'm speaking what is true. In verse 1, he said, you should walk in a manner worthy of your calling. 
in verse 17, he says what that walk is not supposed to be. Before he goes to the positive aspect, he wants to dwell on the negative aspect. He says, you should no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Okay? So there are people around them who walk a particular way. You should not walk like that. Secondly, you also notice he says, no longer walk. So in the past, they did walk as the Gentiles did, but they should no longer have the lifestyle of the Gentiles. That's what a walk means. They should no longer live like the Gentiles. They should no longer have the lifestyle of the people in the society around you. And when he talks about the walk, he's not talking about culture. We have to be very careful. He's not talking about culture. He's talking about morals and ethics. That doesn't mean that cultural practices cannot be influenced by morals and ethics. He's not saying you should leave your culture, but he's saying you should leave your lifestyle. He's not saying Indians should become Americans or Americans should become French. He's saying if you're an Indian, you should be a what do you say? You should be a Christian in India. So don't not about culture, but it's about morality. And you know the New Testament talks a lot about Jews and Gentiles. He focuses on Gentiles because Ephesus was a Gentile city that did not have any cultural or moral influence of the scriptures, either from its past, because there was no influence of the Jews on, on that city or in the present in which Paul is writing. But we have to be careful. He's not asking them to live like the Jews. When he talks about them no longer walking as a Gentile, he's not asking them you should live like the Jews who are in your church. He's saying you should live like who? You should live like Christians. There are some aspects of Christianity that go against all the things that they did as Gentiles. There are some aspects of, of Judaism to the Jews that go against all, some of the things in Christianity. That's when you read Romans and so on, you'll find that. He's saying, no longer walk as the Gentiles, but live as Christians. Because Jesus Christ has abolished the dividing wall and he has made us one people, a new people. He's given us a new identity, that of Christians. So to walk like Christians meant that they could no longer have the moral standards and lifestyle of their Gentile past or of the Gentile city in which they lived. You know, when you look at Ephesus in history, it's a center of idol worship because it's very closely connected to a string of goddesses. The most prominent one and the one that was popular at the time this book was written was the goddess known as Diana or Artemis. But fundamentally, there was a history of immorality in, in, in the Greek and Roman societies. You see, in the Bible, idolatry is always connected to immorality. You know, Romans chapter 1 says, chapter 1, verse 21 to 23, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and the foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So they became idolaters. And if you read the rest of Romans chapter one, you see the immorality that flows from that idolatry. So Paul is saying, you have cast away your idols. Now cast away the immorality that is associated with idolatry. Fundamentally what he's saying is that 
who you call yourself to be, who you are in your identity drives or should drive what you do. Your identity drives your morality and your lifestyle. You're either a citizen of the world or you're a citizen of God's kingdom. And, and he's going to illustrate the fundamental difference between the two. So when he describes this past Gentile lifestyle, he says no longer walk as the Gentiles do, what does he call it? So in these, in these um, three verses, he talks about a lot of aspects of that Gentile lifestyle. First he says there's a futility of mind. They are futile minds. The word futile means useless or not able to achieve go the goal or the intention with which something is done. So he's saying your mind is useless in that lifestyle. Why is that? See, the mind in the Bible is a stand-in for what we sometimes call the heart or the spirit or the will. It drives who you how you behave, your disposition, your attitude, your personality, so to speak. So he's saying that part of your being is useless. Why? Because the original purpose of the mind, as God created it, was to receive and understand the glory and revelation of God. To know God. That's what we read in Romans chapter 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. The original purpose of the mind is to know God and to honor him. But when you abandon the worship of God, the mind no longer can serve its original purpose. Therefore, it becomes useless because it's not functioning the way it was designed to function. So you're, you have a useless mind, a futility of mind. And the, one of the reasons why their minds are useless is the second thing he says, there's a darkness in their understanding, which, means, which basically means their thinking process has no spiritual or moral compass. That means the things that they're supposed to think on and act, they don't. Instead, the things that are morally bad, they call good, and they call what is good bad, and they function accordingly. That's a darkened understanding. It's a lack of light. Then he says they are alienated from the life of God. So if the purpose of the mind is to know God, then the purpose of life is to find fulfillment and satisfaction in God. That is what the life of God means, right? The life of God is characterized by fullness and fulfillment and satisfaction. Now that's a whole other topic that we might cover some other day. That's what it means. The life of God is a life of hope, of satisfaction, of fulfillment. But because you're alienated in your mind from God, you're also alienated from the life of God. That means you're unable to find true fulfillment in your own life. And that feeds a cycle of immorality. Verse 22 of chapter 4 says, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, which is your past, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So he's saying your past has been corrupted. By what? By your own desires. And what is the characteristic with this, of these desires? They're deceitful. Who do they deceive? They deceive you. Because they deceive you into thinking that you can find fulfillment in these desires. And then when you don't find fulfillment in one thing, you try something else. And you go on and go on and go on. What happens? It ends up corrupting you. So deceitful desires corrupt 
you. That is your former life as a Gentile. So they are alienated from the life of God, have finding no purpose, no fulfillment, no satisfaction in the things that they do. They find a futility. And the last thing he says, they have an ignorance due to the hardness of heart. So all of these things, the futility, the lack of understanding, the lack of fulfillment, is driven by this willful ignorance of what? Of the revelation and the commandments of the one true God. You go back to Romans chapter 1, verse 18 onwards it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be made known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse, right? And then you say, you see in verse 21 of Romans chapter 1, it says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him. So this ignorance is due to what? A, a, a hardness of heart. That means it's not a child's ignorance, right? A child is ignorant because he or she does not know does not have the experience, but it's an adult's willful ignorance that having known, you choose to ignore it. They're hardened in their hearts means they have developed what we call a thick skin, which makes it impossible for the revelation of God to penetrate, to get into their hearts. And because they are so opposed to God and willfully ignorant, what happens? They are thus alienated from the life of God darkened in their understanding and futile, useless in their minds. And all of this darkness and futility results in chapter four, verse 19 in Ephesians. It says, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So when you have a hard heart, the result is you become callous. Like that's a dermatological term, right? Like your skin becomes hardened so that it becomes insensitive to both pleasure and to pain. That's what callousness is. So they have become insensitive to morality and so they have given themselves up to what's called your sensuality, but it's indecency the practice of sin without concern as to what God or other people say. Their only moral standard is themselves because they're callous, they're insensitive to anything external to them. So everything that determines their standard comes from within them. So they give themselves up to indecency. No matter what other people say or what God says, I will do this. And they're greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now because they have no fulfillment, they have no satisfaction, they have no hope, and their desires are corrupt, or their desires are deceitful, they chase after every kind of impurity. Whether it is sexual impurity, or financial impurity, or relational impurity, it doesn't say, it. impurity is not just sexual. Every kind of impurity is what they chase after. You know, if you look in history, the foundation of, you could say, the foundation of modern society, a lot of it is Greco-Roman, is Greek and Roman in nature, right? The, the idea of, you know, you could say 
the republic or of the court system and so on and so forth, if you can trace it back to, to the Greek and the Romans. And if you look at literature, if you look at science, you know, Aristotle and Pythagoras and so on, a lot of things come back or you can trace back to them. But what people don't really think too much about is what they did as a society. Their fundamental immorality should astonish you when you read history. You know, we all know the popular one of like, you know, Sparta, right, which is this military society where they would look at babies who have been born and if, if they were somehow deformed in any way or they felt that they were weak and could not survive, they would just throw that baby away and leave that baby to die. In, 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 a, in a culture of, or in a, in, a, in a part of ancient Greece called Crete, they practice a form of sexual immorality that's so horrific but it's true, you can read it on Wikipedia if you want to, where the way boys became men were that they were molested by older men. So what would happen is that when boys are, are growing up, they would be told that one day you'll become a man. And they would be warned or they would be told this is what's going to happen. Then the father of that boy would agree with some other older man who has a wife, you know, they were, you know, they, they had wives, they had mistresses, all of that stuff. This older, other man would come and abduct the boy when it felt it was time for him to become a man. Take him away for two, three months, they would go hunting, feasting, and then they would molest the boy. And then they would return him back home. And that, it's a historical fact. You see, all the advance in knowledge and philosophy and science is not a guarantee that you will advance in morals. This is where our society goes wrong today. They think that the good morals they see as, which is actually the influence of Christianity, is innately there in people. So they say, oh, we need to go back to a time when we didn't have all these restrictions and so on. But then you look back in history, this is what they used to do. So Paul's fundamental point is that in your past lives, your minds were useless, so your lifestyles were unholy. But today you have become a Christian, so though not, that no longer should be the way you live your lives. Who we are, verse 20 to 24, but that's not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So Paul says that's not the way you are to live. He specifically says that's not what you have learned. What have you learned? See here, the content of that learning, of that instruction, is not a fact, or is not some intellectual uh, knowledge, what is it? It is Christ. And we note that it is not learning about Christ, or learning of Christ, but learning Christ himself. What does that mean? 
How do you learn a person? Really, what is it? But that's not the way you have known Christ. Or basically, it means you have to know him personally. The aim of Christian faith is to, not to know of Christ, but to know him. There's a difference. One is intellectual. The second is spiritual. In that, you form an intimate appreciation of this person that you have devoted your life to. That's how you learn a person. So you have learned Christ. And in knowing him, in learning him, you desire to know of his life, his will for your life, his desires, and to order your life around that accordingly. So you have learned Christ, so you live as if you have learned Christ. To be a Christian is to know Christ. And to know Christ fundamentally means you're no longer a Gentile in your morality. Your identity is renewed, remade in his image. You have a new life. You know, verse 24 talks about this new life, right? It says you put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Adam was created by God in the garden, in God's image, but at the fall that image was marred was broken. But the new life that is available in Jesus Christ is once again modeled in the image of God. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, we know. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And the new life that you have is created in the image of God. What is that image? What is the character of that new life? True righteousness and holiness. It means you do the right things. You do what is holy in reverent fear towards God. And it's true. What is the problem with the desires of the Gentiles in their old lifestyle? Their desires were deceitful as opposed to the deceit of your own desires. The new life of God gives you what? truth which is reflected in righteousness and holiness so Paul wants to make sure that they have heard about him and were taught in him why wouldn't you want to be because he's the way the truth and the life so he says that is not what you have learned and when did you learn this he says that's not what you have learned it's in the past there's a point at which that learning Christ happened you learned Christ or you knew Christ when you became a Christian. Right? You learned Christ, you became a Christian. It happens once in the past. Once you have learned Christ, then you begin the process of learning how to live like Christ. But it cannot happen without you having learned Christ first. So when you were born again, you knew him and you began the process of learning what it means to live for him. So at a point in your past, you learned Christ. Right? When you were born again, you learned Christ. What did you learn? That's what he talks about in Ephesians chapter 4, 22 verse 24. He says, you learned to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So how many things did you learn? You learned two things. It looks like three, but really it's two. You learned that you put off your old self, your old man, your old identity, and you put on the new man. 
And then you also learn to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. See, the word to put off and to put on, what does it convey in your mind? Piece of clothing, right? So you put off a piece of clothing, you take off a piece of clothing. But really what it means here is you have taken off an old identity and put on a new one. Or you have taken off the old man, corrupt through deceitful desires, and you put on the new man created in the image of God. And when you read it in the English language, which is what we have, it seems that it's like you, what you do every day, right? You put off, you put on. You, you put off your clothes, you put on your clothes. You put off your clothes, you put on your clothes. But that's not actually what it's trying to convey. This is a singular event. The grammar here is a singular event in the past. It basically says, you have, when you learned Christ, you have put off the old man and put on the new. This has happened. It's an event that's already happened. Your old identity is gone. It's cast away. Now you go look in the wardrobe for that old jacket. It's not there. Your mom took it and sold it at the yard sale. It's no longer there. It's gone. Instead, your new identity is what you have and that's what you continue to wear. There's no going back. See, many Christians live in this um, spiritual identity crisis. They believe that their identity is transient. It's not set in stone. That means that you wake up, you're the old man. Then somehow, you have to become the new man again. And then you sleep, you wake up, you're once again the old man. And then again, you put, that's not what it says. It says, you did that. You put off the old man. You did it. It's done. Gone. Now you sleep. You just, whatever you do, you're the new man. That's what Christianity is. You have become a Christian. That's it. There's no option for a reversal or for a temporary regression back to being the old man. It's done. In its core, this is the idea of baptism, right? Romans chapter 6, verse 1 to 4 says, what, are we, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin, who died to sin, still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order, just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the fire, we too might walk in the newness of life. It happened. It's buried. It's not going to come back up. If it's buried, it's done. There's no zombies. So don't live your life in a spiritual identity crisis. You're either a Christian or you're not. If you're a Christian, you're not going back to not being a Christian. So then, you ask, if you have already put off the old man and you put on the new man, what do we need to do now? Paul says you must no longer walk. So clearly, there's some continual event that has to happen to enable us to no longer walk as your old man, but to walk as the new man. What is that? Why do we still struggle with sin and all the temptations to fall back into the old patterns of life? Ones that don't match our new identity. If we have cast off the old man, why do we still act and sin like him in our new being once in a while? And the answer to that question, which we won't really get too much into because we all have some awareness of it, is throughout the New Testament. 
the fundamentally our spirit has been remade. But we are still in the flesh, so we still battle with the desires of the flesh that we inhabit and the world in which we live. But our identity is secure and what we are engaged in is the process of growing into that identity. We are becoming who we already are. We are learning to first crawl, then walk, then run as Christians. So your identity is secure. You're growing up from being a child into an adult. So what happens is that it's not your identity that keeps changing. What keeps changing? Your maturity keeps changing. So your identity is secure, but your maturity keeps changing. We are growing into Christ, as we read in the last passage. You know, Paul says in Galatians chapter four, he says he's in anguish for the Galatians. He says, I'm, I'm again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is fully formed in you. He's saying we are secure in Christ, but we have to grow in Christ-likeness. You have to become more like him every day that you live, which means also that we are becoming less and less like the world. How does that process happen? Verse 23, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. This is a continuous event. This is a present tense. You are to be renewed present tense in the spirit of your minds. As contrasted with the past event of putting off the old person and putting on the new person, the present event is that you are being renewed in the spirit of your mind. What is the spirit of your mind? What's the old mind of the Gentiles? It's futile. The new mind, the moral center of the new man created in the image of God, that is your spirit. The, the, core, the core of our identity so it's saying this is a spiritual thing, not just an intellectual thing. You can learn everything you need to learn about morality. But the change has to happen in your spirit, which is the center of your being. This is also a passive event. You are being renewed in the spirit of your minds, not by yourself, but by someone else. First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, it says, when you were born again, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So the Holy Spirit has quickened our spirit into new life, so your, our human spirit is renewed. You can't renew the Holy Spirit. He's God. So what spirit can be renewed? Your spirit can be renewed. And that spirit of ours is being renewed daily by the Holy Spirit. We are not doing the renewing. Some, he is doing the renewing. You know, we read this verse in the morning. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting, away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So we create that environment in which that renewal happens. And that renewal of our spirit by the Holy Spirit has immense practical aspects. Romans chapter 12 Verse two, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. As you're being renewed in your inner self, you are being transformed so that you are going to progress in holiness. So that you become who you already are. You are already a Christian, but the process of becoming more and more like Christ is the Christian walk. 
One practical aspect I'll highlight, but we'll look at all of these later. Chapter four and verse 25, it says, therefore having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. He says, therefore having put away falsehood. He doesn't say therefore put away falsehood and speak the truth. No, he says having put away falsehood, you did it. Your, your identity is no longer that you are a liar. Your identity is no longer that you're a compuls compulsive liar. But now that your identity is that of a Christian, what is the practical aspect? Speak the truth. Not just, not just don't lie, just speak the truth. Having put away falsehood, let us learn only to speak the truth. So how does all of this work? You're put on the new man. It's a one-time event. You're being renewed daily by the Spirit continuous event, but it's passive, you're not doing it. So then what should you do? Seems easy, right? Something happened in the past, now God is working in me, what, what can I do? Should I just sit there and wait for God to work? This is what many Christians do, right? Like, I'm praying and praying and praying. God, change me. Nothing is happening. That's, you know, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 to 13. It says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, this is Paul speaking, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What is he trying to say? Just because the Holy Spirit is working in you, doesn't mean that you can be passive. It means that you cannot renew yourself. But you can do things to frustrate the work of the Spirit. You can do things to quench the work of the Spirit. On the other hand, you can do things that will aid the work of the Spirit. That's what it says, work out your own salvation with reverent fear so that God can work in you. You know, how many of us do New Year's resolutions, right? Why do New Year's resolutions typically fail? Why do, why do resolutions typically fail? Is it because, is the pattern of a resolution that you resolve every day, right? So January, 30, like January 1st, I'm like, I'm a new man. I'm only going to eat healthy food. Do you like wake up every day and say, I'm only going to eat healthy food, I'm only going to eat healthy food? No, you resolved it, it's a resolution, it happened in the past. But what do you have to do? You have to reaffirm it, not recreate it. So you cannot say, this day, today I'm going to eat healthy. Tomorrow I'm not going to eat. Today, no, you reaffirm the resolution that you have already made. Then you monitor how it is working. And then you correct your course of life as you need to. Because what happened? The old me died on December 31st. The new me is growing and must be nurtured. So you reaffirm and you monitor and you correct. You begin by learning Christ, by knowing him. You continue to learn him, know him, know more of him so that he will be formed in you. You find your satisfaction in him and, and then as you know more of him, the things of this world gradually begin to lose their shininess so that you can aid the Spirit's work in your life to renew your mind and transform your thinking so that what is holy and righteous becomes beautiful and attractive to our minds and our sense. And what is impure becomes disgusting and shameful. So you monitor are you progressing? Are you being more attracted towards what's holy and righteous? 
or are you still fighting the temptations of that which is impure? And you have to fight. To no longer walk as the Gentiles is to fight against every inclination of our old discarded self and the, you know, the pressure and the incentives of the world. You have to train yourself. Romans chapter 13 verse 14 says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, similar words, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its results. That's a fight. You have to fight. But sometimes you, know, you should know when to flee. A lot of Christians go wrong because they, they overcomplicate their life. Don't overcomplicate your life. Flee temptation. First Corinthians chapter 6 says, 6 verse 18, it says, flee from sexual immorality. Second Timothy chapter 2 verse 22 says, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those, the church, who call on the Lord from a pure heart. As a Christian, you're not called to fight every battle, especially ones in which there's a risk of danger to your new man. Some battles you don't fight because you're not mature. Children cannot fight the same battles that adults do. But some battles you don't fight at all. That's what, flee from sexual immorality is a battle you don't want to fight. Proverbs chapter 22 verse three says, the prudent sees danger and what? Hides himself. But the simple go on and suffer for it. God is not interested in you going into the den of sexual immorality and saying, I will survive. He says you flee. You know why? Because not every fight has to be fought. Have you heard of guerrilla warfare? You know what guerrilla warfare is? It's when you have a regular army. Let's say it's the American army, the most powerful army in the world. Goes into battle, defeats the forces on the battlefield. So they have won the war. Then what happens? There'll be a few remnants. And they start engaging in what's known as guerrilla warfare. That means they put landmines. Instead of like fighting on the battlefield, they put landmines and bombs in cities. They disguise themselves as ordinary people and then go up to someone and shoot them. Or they you know, sit on the top of like a tall building and start sniping. You know what the American, does the American army just go in, stepping over every landmine, being unguarded from snipers? They say, no, that's not the battle. You won't win, that's not the battle you fight. You won the war. Don't be killed by the two or three stragglers. That's what Satan does. Satan knows he's lost the war, but he will try to trip you up. He will try to defeat you by disguising himself. And the reason why he does that, knowing that he has lost the war, is to frustrate the work of Jesus Christ, both in yourself and also to the world. See, every time a Christian falls publicly, you know what Satan does? He puts that person up and tells everyone else around him, look at this person, he says all these things and yet he acts just like you do. That is his victory. Jesus Christ wants to display us as trophies. Satan wants to humiliate us and say we are hypocrites. 
That's the only thing he cares about. He's engaged in guerrilla warfare. It's not a battle that we should fight because Jesus Christ has won the victory. So practically speaking, you reaffirm, you learn, you have a daily discipline of knowing more of God's will, reading God's word, praying. You monitor and you ask God for repentance when you fall and you ask for strength to not fall. And you know, as Romans or Second Timothy said, uh, be in the body along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Be in fellowship, have some accountability. That's how you monitor. And then you course correct. When you fall, when you, when you fail, you have to do something so that you don't fail. Maybe you put little um, you know, post-it notes on your computer monitor. Maybe you delete an app from your phone. Maybe you are someone who constantly just keeps checking your bank account. Maybe you should forget the password to that and give it to your wife or to your husband. You have to do something. You cannot just be sitting there saying that I'm not going to do anything. Let's see if God can change me. The old man is dead. The new man is alive. We are to grow into our new identity. You know, there's this very famous story about Augustine. You know, Augustine, before he became a Christian, he lived a very immoral life especially from a, a relational aspect, right? He had uh, sexual relationships with many women. And one day after he became a Christian, he was walking down the street and one of his old lovers came up and said, hi, Augustine, how are you doing? Do you want to come home with me? That was his practice in the past. He said, no, I'm sorry, and he walked away. And then she chases him and looks at him and says, but Augustine, do you remember who I am? It's me, it's me, that's what she said. He looked around and he said, yes, but it's not me. He's saying, I'm not Augustine. You are you, I agree, but I am no longer who I was. I'm someone else. The world will not change. Don't expect the world to change. Circumstances will not change, but who can change? you can change, and you have changed. It's a process of making that change more and more visible every day of our life. That is how we are being renewed in the spirit of, your, of our minds, how we all grow into Christ-likeness, so that as the body, when all its members grow, together we can grow into maturity and holiness and truth into Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for this time, for blessing us and giving us your word, for the uh, practical um, aspects of it, Lord, that we often discount. Lord, we thank you that you've given us all this information that we need to take to heart and make real in the core of our being, in our own spirits. We are thankful, Lord, that we are no longer that old person, that we are no longer the person who lived a immoral and debauched life, O oh Lord, but we are someone new. We don't have to do that to find satisfaction or find fulfillment because we are able to find satisfaction and fulfillment in knowing you and in learning you. We are thankful, O oh Lord, that you have given us a way in which as we grow in our faith, we have the opportunity to grow and mature 
by knowing more of you and allowing the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, to renew our spirits so that what is good to you, what is holy to you, what is desirable to you becomes good and desirable to us as well. We pray, O Lord, that we will not have a cause uh, or will not be a cause for your shame in the world that is watching, but rather we can proudly be presented as trophies of the King who has conquered everything. So we ask for your strength to live life as new men and women of the kingdom of God into which you have brought us through the work you accomplished on the cross of Calvary. It's a daily battle, Lord, as we go out into the world. So we ask for your confidence, your affirmation, and the encouragement of the indwelling spirit as we go forth. Bless us and be with us. We ask the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.